Welcome to The Football Studio, a show where I speak with influential people I look up to in the football industry. I'm Sebastian Alvarado. My goal with these conversations is to get to know the person behind the title. I want to understand how they think, how they got to where they are, and get their personal perspectives and insights on all things life, career, and football. My guest today is Ahmed Schaefer, the founder and CEO of Core Sports Capital, a Zurich-based company that owns and operates clubs in France, Denmark, and Austria. A young yet veteran sports executive, he's worked selling hospitality packages to the World Cup. He's managed the TV rights portfolio for MPN Silva, one of the world's top media rights companies. He was a founding member of the Arab Gold Cup Football Federation, and perhaps most notably, he was the assistant to Sepp Blatter at FIFA. We talk about his journey and dive into the inner workings and unique approach of Core Sports Capital, and of course, what it was like to work for Sepp Blatter. Here's my conversation with Ahmed Schaefer. Ahmed, welcome to the football studio. Thank you very much, Seba. It's, it's a pleasure to be here today with you out of our office in, uh, in Zurich. Uh, thank you for having me. Now, thank you, Ahmed. As, as I was just saying here in the pre-chat that, you know, you're one of those characters that, you know, people might not have heard of as much, not yet, soon enough that we'll hear even more, uh, but who has had such a diverse and interesting journey in football. So, you know, I'm really honored and, and look forward to this conversation. Um, well, first, how do you typically introduce yourself to people you meet for the first time and when they ask, you know, who are you and what do you do? What's that introduction? Well, the introduction is uh, rather that we are football entrepreneurs and not people coming from the finance world wanting to invest into football. Um, for a quick introduction, I'm Swiss of Turkish, born and raised here, studied at uh, the University of Zurich Business uh, Administration, and then at my first job in, in FIFA, where I worked as the assistant of the back then FIFA president, and then decided to join a bit of more commercial field in football and joined the media rights agency MP Silva in 2011, for which I was responsible to purchase media rights of leagues, clubs, federations, and also had a specific business development role uh, out of Dubai and initially London. In 2016, I then assisted the eight associations of the uh, GCC, so uh, Saudi Arabia, Qatar, Oman, Kuwait, UAE, etc., to establish a pan-regional football governing body, which is the Arab Gulf Cup Football Federation, um, so to say a, a small UEFA, if you want, in the region of the Gulf. Where football mm -hmm. is very popular, and they have won specifically biannual national team tournament, which is called the Gulf Cup of Nations, where the eight nations compete. And the stadia are obviously fully packed now in COVID, not so much, but uh, before, um, because for those teams it's considered like a World Cup. So then in 2017, when the project was uh, accomplished, uh, the question well was, what's next? And I wanted to get a bit closer to the game. And to be able to get uh, closer to the game, well, one way is um, you can invest actively into a football club. And uh, I wanted to purchase the club of uh, Trois, uh, now in second league, by the way, purchased by the uh, uh, Abu Dhabi Sovereign Wealth Fund City Football Group just uh, two, three months ago. Then the negotiations didn't materialize as we had envisaged. And um, we took a step back and we said, why invest into one club in the first division if the money can be split and invested into several clubs in the second division 
which is a different dynamic. But the idea is to create an alliance. What airline companies have been already doing for decades, why not help those clubs which are too strong to get relegated, but just a bit too weak to get promoted because there's something missing, but have a very strong regional connection uh, with sponsors, with the local political municipalities, and are in strategic football markets. And that's how we remained in France, and we conducted various due diligences on a lot of clubs, and ended up uh, then purchasing Clermont uh, on the 4th of October 2019. Uh, and then after that, Austria, Austria Lustenau, our second club, came into place, as well as Wenzüssel, which is our most recent acquisition in Denmark, again, second division. Because the idea is to stay in that niche and occupy that sweet spot, but occupy it on a holistic basis. Yeah, that's really interesting, especially that whole holistic approach that you guys have. There aren't that many in, in the world that I've seen with, with anything similar, and, and especially not in, in those categories. That whole approach that, that you have in that alliance is, is fascinating, and we're going to get into all the details. I want to break it down to really, really understand it. Um, but first, just a few things uh, about yourself. Um, so let's start from the beginning. Um, what kinds of routines do you have? So in the morning, from the moment you get up and from there on, what do you do? Well, um, in the morning, I mean, we have three kids. So when I get up in the morning, it's uh, and a dog now as well. So uh, it's 5.30, then going to the gym at, at 6 a.m., then I'm back at 7. Then we read and do some math with the kids. Then my wife drops them off and I come to the office and then uh, we sort of start the day and with three clubs, either you had the matches uh, on the weekend. So the mood is always a bit depending on on, on Monday morning, uh, what happened on the weekend. Now we have all a smile because we had good results, very important results. Um, but we don't try to lose the bigger picture uh, just because of, you know, week to week matches. We need to keep uh, that strategy which we have put in place up and running. Um, that's how, how I basically start my day. And then, uh, well, now we travel a bit less. But usually when I was still living in Dubai, I was uh, traveling basically once a week to attend the various home games of, of the three clubs, which was quite intense. Um, now, once we have the vaccination and hopefully things get back to normal from Switzerland, it will be much easier to be in Denmark, in France uh, and in Austria. What are the um, industry sources you read to stay up to date? We have, I mean, from the when we speak about our financing business, where we lend money to clubs, it's always obviously more the uh, financial uh, data which we are consuming. There are a lot of reports from KPMG Football, from Deloitte Football, but also articles in in Financial Times. Um, otherwise, if you want to have more insights on sponsorship deals, you go towards a sport business uh, or, or insights on media rights deals, which is also a very prominent source because under the sports business umbrella, there are various brands which they promote. Uh, and then we have one of my associates, uh, Jerome Champagne, who actually produces since 2011 a daily news briefing, which has become uh, so big, but that was actually not his first intention that more and more people are reading it and uh, they are actually all decision makers coming from the world of, of football. Um, so 
I'm very fortunate not only to have him uh, as an associate uh, on a day-to-day basis, but also as a source. What's that briefing called? Well, it's a link which he actually puts together himself and then he sends it out. So he actually invites you to be part of that mailing list. It's uh, Currently, there are over 400 people on that, uh, on that mailing list. That's interesting. I was um, recently just did an interview with Erkut Sogut. You may be familiar with him, also of Turkish background, but German, uh, Mesut Özil's agent. Um, but his whole approach as well and, and him becoming an agent has a lot to do with kind of leading with insights. And he wants to be a teacher, um, but that's almost how he started off his career of putting together you know, packages and things just with, with industry insights. And in his case, it was about sports law. Yeah, interesting. So uh, ultimately, I mean, being in the football world uh, ever since I finished my university degree allows me also to be connected to a lot of people because uh, you, you st- it's still an industry where uh, having the edge on information is very important. And especially for us, because we don't have unlimited funds or uh, some sort of government or a uh, company producing silver cans, which uh, supports us. It's, uh, it's all us. So we have to wake up an hour earlier than everyone else. In addition to industry-specific sources, um, do you have any routines that you do to constantly keep evolving yourself? We constantly evolve by talking to the people who are in our clubs. The fact that, as I initially had briefly mentioned, we do not have um, CEOs in our clubs uh, nor sporting directors allows us, but also obliges us to have that direct link and uh, to keep very efficient structures within the clubs. For instance, in Clermont, we have 13, 14 people in the administration, so in the non-sportive part. In uh, in Wenzel, we have six, uh, and in uh, Lustenau, four. So uh, the reason for having those lean structures allows us also then to be more efficient because especially now in the COVID crisis, we need to take care of the costs. And as you know, the most important costing block are the player salary, coach salary. So we try to optimize and uh, uh, exploit those synergies on the cost, but also on the commercial side. And we evolve through speaking to them on an everyday basis, because that's the primary source for us. We do not know any, uh, everything, nor do they, but we speak to them. We address their problems hands-on and we try to learn. And then when we speak, you know, when you have the information from all three clubs, yes, every club is in a different country, in a different league, in a different region with characteristics, specifics. But after all, the asset itself is a football club. So you can learn from one club to the other. You bring together the commercial directors. In Denmark, people come before the match. They drink beer and they eat before the match. They get uh, some sweets and coffee at halftime. And after the match, they go home. This is the custom in Denmark. No one stays after the match. In France, people stay after the match. Mm. On a review, they want to discuss, they want to share the the emotions of the game. And that's where, for instance, the commercial directors learn from each other. But the same applies also for accounting, marketing, sponsorship, hospitality, etc. Yeah, and understanding those cultural nuances is so important. So you can't come with one-size-fits-all type of a model when you step into that. You truly need to get into the inside and then approach it from the inside out. What you're saying is is very right. And and you're also half European, as I am. 
And um, we also spoke to certain groups which uh, come from the country where you are currently at and thinking about alliances or doing alliance business and having already purchased clubs. And there it's, we come, we fire everyone, we have an algorithm, we don't need the coach, the, the computer decides, we don't care about, that's an approach, fine. In our opinion, there is a certain reason that it took us 10 months to be in Clermont, which was our first acquisition, get acquainted with the mayor, with the city council, with the department of the region of the Auvergne, with the city of Clermont, with the former owner who didn't need the money, but he was in the transition period because of his age and because of uh, the fact that he is the biggest organizer of MotoGP races in France since 25 years and his children have been working there. So he wanted to give a piece of the club to the right people rather than going out and being able to maybe sell to someone coming from China, the Middle East, Russia, States, and get much more money than I could have ever paid, but then maybe to be blamed the season after because the club has been ripped apart. We have not fired one single employee in all of the three clubs, not because we are a charity organization, but because every time when we were doing the due diligence process, we took so much time and entered in every detail that we already knew by then that it was a plug and play once we actually had closed the deal. So different cultures, as you rightly say, have different approaches of management and uh, also daily operations. It's so interesting because we're seeing the increased appetite for potential ownership groups of acquiring clubs. I've come across it quite a bit here in the U.S. as well. And just like you say, in terms of the approach, let's say clubs, whether it's in France or in Portugal or in Spain, and you know whether it's first, second or third tier, it's often not about the money they put on the table, that it is really about getting to know the, the mayor the local people, fans, the influential, the cultural people within those communities and learning from having lived here quite a few years. You know, when people ask, what's the difference between U.S. sports and, and let's say sports or football in Europe? And I oftentimes say that here they're used to and grew up with sports being almost entertainment entities, whereas sport or football specifically in Europe and, and many other parts of the world is deeply rooted in culture and has an impact on that on that society essentially and unless you've lived it it's difficult to truly understand it if you've lived your whole life with sports basically being just your entertainment yes and uh, and i don't think that in any way there's a trade off be be between being humble discreet under the radar as we try to be and prudent but still be very determined ambitious and have a plan for action it just may take a bit longer once you implement it. But if you have a healthy base because everyone is behind you and they believe into your project because you have convinced them, seduced them and actually show them what you want to do over time, uh, I think it makes much more sense to come purchase a club and say, we are going to compete with Paris Saint-Germain as a certain investor group did, which now again had to sell the club, which comes from a nice city with... Uh, the best wines in this world, where the uh, certain gentleman was already wearing the uh, colors of the um, of the club without even even passed at the financial commission, uh, which is in France very rigid. 
but that's a bit that's another approach you can take that we just saw where that ended they're doing something else now um personally as an entrepreneur football entrepreneur i don't mind having redbird capital buying toulouse in the french league the oak tree capital one of the biggest private equity funds buying mm-hmm. Caen league the sovereign wealth fund of abu dhabi buying trois in league two the bahrain sovereign wealth fund buying for 20 percent of paris fc for five million valuating the club at 25 million euros um i don't complain about that yes competition in france has become now more, more intense but it shows that uh, and it's a pure coincidence that we have been the first uh, wave then all what I've just mentioned came over the last couple of months. Uh, that shows that we are probably in the right spot when I say we want to occupy that sweet spot. The same, obviously, also for Denmark and Austria. How do you describe core sports capital? Well, I mean, we have, as we say in our presentation, we'll, we try to think global and act local. Uh, in our sense, it really applies because we have three local assets and a football club in the second division is a very local asset. It's not a global brand. Others in Liga are global brands, but we still have to think on an international basis. When we go and speak to a kit manufacturer, it can be one for all three. When we do a scouting strategy, it's a global scouting strategy because we consider our clubs as certain chapters in a book. There's a chapter for everyone and everyone can enter into the book at different stages of their career. It can be a nine-year-old from Chile who comes with his parents to Europe, but it can be also a 21-year-old Swedish guy who has not not been able to succeed in, uh, in a club in Denmark. And we take him, we put him in our club in Denmark. From there, he goes to France and he ends up in Ligue 1. So all of these modular structures describe that very international approach, but yet day-to-day being locally. What's the business model? We have three pillars. The one is the alliance pillar. The second one is Football Impulse, which is a data analytics and performance measurement platform, which has been developed by Cariba. Uh, software company and already successfully implemented in the Aspire Academy in Qatar and in the Italian Football Federation, which are using that solution now for all of their national teams. Um, And thereof, we have a joint venture. We own 50%. We have developed now a club version, which is fully implemented in our clubs. And as from next year, will be rolled out to other clubs. It provides on a holistic basis the necessary information from stemming from scouting, medical, match analysis, and training. Today, you have to look at it that you already have existing systems which nurture those four modules on an individual basis. What you do not have is an overarching platform-neutral solution which gathers the data and then helps whoever comes from medical or your scouts or your coaches Uh, but also the players who get their data uh, and the match analysis to make better decisions whenever you know, okay, I'm going to play against this opponent, the data gets fed into the system and the system provides you with suggestions. The third and the last pillar is our advisory unit, where we actually offer 
consultancy services, advisory services for clubs, which are in a similar situation as we are and may require scouting for South America. They can't afford it. But if we have our head of football going to South America and visiting three countries on behalf of four clubs, well, then it's worth the trip. But on a standalone basis, he would not be able to do that. We also offer in our advisory unit bridge financing services where clubs come and lend money against guaranteed transfer rights, TV rights, sponsorship rights, which especially now has become very important in the COVID uh, situation. Where, because, for instance, if you sell a player, you don't get the money up front or on signature, you get it over two or three years. So that money is stretched and some clubs want to advance that money. So the ultimate vision would be today you have independent asset managers for wealth, you have independent asset managers for real estate, but not independent asset managers for football clubs. And you have very successful businessmen. They want to buy a football club, but they're coming from another industry. They want to buy it for the real estate or for the glory or for whatever other reason. They come, they sign the deal, they go to closing and they have McKinsey, Goldman Sachs, KPMG. The day they close, all of these guys vanish. The guy sits there and says, I made a billion fortune with whatever, and I'm losing 2.5 million euros every year. Why? Why? Because it's a very fragile and it's a very distinct asset, which is not comparable to any other asset class. And that's where we come in and we can provide if the client is at the beginning of the value chain and he requires financing to acquire his asset or he has acquired it, but he says, take over the daily management or do the scouting, do the team squad planning, we can offer those services. And to show towards also the potential client, we have our own clubs. Yes, it may not be as glamorous as a Premier League club, but those are professional football clubs after all. So we have skin in the game. It's all my money. And that also gives a certain amount of credibility, at least that's what we believe, and reputation to say, if we apply our know-how, our technology, and the way we approach youth development and the local embedness of the clubs, that's as far as we can get. Maybe one day we'll be promoted and we have the ultimate proof of concept. But at least we try to do what we say and say what we do by applying the same principles to our own clubs. You mentioned about having skin in the game and, and that it's all your money in this. So you did not raise any outside capital for it? No, because that also is uh, was, was part of the plan that uh, we want to be agile, we want to be quick. Uh, we don't want to go to some sovereign wealth fund or whatever, private equity. I mean, they started to approach us, to talk to us, uh, because they think that that ecosystem composed of proprietary assets, technology, advisory is interesting for different dynamics. The club business, you can't scale it infinitely because uh, ultimately the fourth and the fifth club, do, those benefits do not necessarily justify the investment plus the potential headache you can get. Technology is super scalable. That's something which can go theoretically into every second or third year club globally. And the third element, the advisory, if you want to keep a certain quality, uh, the client then also pays for the senior management and you cannot just send someone who's just uh, out of university. 
because then you cannot deliver potentially the same quality. So that's also semi-scalable. So it's a, it's a, it's a mixture of um, of scalability and also ultimately of value because you can unlock a lot of value if you get promoted. That's why also one of the reasons which we said why invest the entire money in the first division if you can split the money and go into second division. Now, even though there are a bit of uh, problems in the uh, TV rights situation in France, which got uh, almost resolved, so uh, I wouldn't say there is a crisis. There is no crisis. We have resolved that. And um, But ultimately, if you get promoted, then the TV rights uh, sixfold in the worst-case scenario. And that's a massive leverage because you know that the salaries won't sixfold. You already have stipulated the salary increase today in the contracts, what will happen if you go into And they will not. They will still travel with the same amount of, of planes. And the hotel will be maybe a bit better, but so you have a, you have a big, 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 big gap which, which stays there. But you have to be very prudent because clubs now in the first division, they thought, oh, the new contract with Media Pro will come and everything is perfect. So they already overspent the money in the transfer window in summer, anticipating that those monies would come. Money didn't come, but the money was already spent. So players have been signed for five years. There have been bonuses paid upon signature, which clubs would have never done before. Yeah. So that's where we have that disbalance as well. You talk about the, and you mentioned it up front here as well, the, the model of airlines. What do you mean by that? Well, I mean, if you look at what uh, Star Alliance is doing, which is led by Lufthansa and Swiss and other airlines and Turkish airlines, etc., they all land at the same airport, but by mutualizing services, the after services, the maintenance, the fuel purchase, the catering, the ticketing service, you actually optimize costs. And, uh, and also uh, uh, potentially then a higher profit margin and support everyone to come into that alliance and incentivize them as well. Then you have those airlines, which are allegedly not backed, but backed by governments, especially maybe from the Middle East, uh, where the bottom line is, is not, not, not the primary priority, let's say, or criteria. Uh, they can then be uh, more or less alone, but even those come into one world or create their own alliances. So um, it's more about uh, saying, okay, they're the big ones. We'll never be able to compete with the big ones, but we don't want to compete with the big ones. We want to occupy, as I said initially, that sweet spot through all of the three pillars of our group, but there become a niche and the niche in quality which means have a good scouting, get the players early, because the more the competition is increasing, look at again Clermont, which are the clubs which we have in our vicinity, Saint-Étienne, Lyon, Marseille. We can't go if there is a guy who is 16 years old and say, come to Clermont, if the club has already taken taken care of the parents and, uh, and the boy is receiving already a big salary. So what's the consequence for us? We have to go earlier. If you go earlier, the risk is higher because if the boy is 13, you won't be able to predict as much as he's 16 and 18 and 19 what he's going to become later. So if you go earlier, more risk. But ultimately, our argument is what? We have an academy in our clubs, especially now in, if you take Clermont to stay in the example of France, where we have three in the starting 11 coming from the city. So, I mean... That's already a very big 
plus to showcase to the people that it's not just talk. You bring the guys in, you educate them well, train them, accompany them well, and then they can play in the first team. If not, they could also go to Lustenau or they can go to Wenzüssel, have a season or two there, and then come back again. So that modular system of having multiple platforms helps to convince the, boy, the, the parents of the boy to say, actually, yes, we will get more money if he goes to Liga, but will he play? No, he won't play. But we want, he needs to play to grow. If he doesn't play, what are we doing here? So, yeah, you see where that's going. When you were starting this group and the company, were there any models that you were looking to that inspired you? Um, I mean, yes, inspiration a bit different, but maybe showed us a bit the dynamics. So obviously you have the city football group. That's the biggest backed by a government. Um, okay, Silver Lake purchased um, a significant stake, which uh, evaluates value, the business over 5 billion now over time, which is very impressive. Then you have uh, Red Bull, which basically has an objective to sell more of a consumer product and then may finance the football business out of the marketing budget. You have the Pozzo family, which slightly sacrificed Udinese to keep Watford in the Premier League, which didn't work out so well until now, but uh, still a very successful business model if you just look at the, at the numbers in terms of transfer business. Then you have uh, Mr. Duchatelet, who owned uh, a variety of clubs, still does, uh, including Charlton Athletics. There, I didn't actually quite understand if there is a business model behind it. And then you have uh, Mr. Tan, businessman from Malaysia, who owned uh, uh, LAFC, Courtrai in Belgium, as well as uh, FK Sarajevo, uh, out of which he sold 60% to the Vietnamese semi-government entity Vingroup, which has clubs in Vietnam themselves. But they're also producing electronic cars and the Formula One uh, in Hanoi, which was supposed to take place or next year, I guess. Um, so that shows also how globalized football is, that you have a Malaysian businessman selling a stake of a club in Bosnia-Herzegovina to a semi-government entity in Vietnam. Quite fascinating. So, yeah, definitely we checked all of those dynamics. Everyone has different motives. Uh, but what we had not figured out is something in a layer underneath, second league, with technology, with advisory, with own assets, and uh, and again, and, and, and financing business and being that, in that sweet spot. Yeah, it's so interesting. Some of the ones that you mentioned, you know, where they almost have like that soft power uh, yeah. of a government or, or a country. Um, I don't know that all football fans really understand what that means. How would you describe it simply to those who have no concept of what that is? Well, I mean, uh, there are certain governments, uh, rather non-democratic governments, which try to position themselves via a very popular vehicle. And I would say one of the most popular vehicles is football, uh, sports bashing, and uh, to position then the country on a global scale uh, you can do that uh, rather quickly in an expedite manner if you uh, actually invest into a top flight club and uh, and keep it up there or then move into the Champions League and try to win it. Certain governments have been trying to do that uh, 
by investing over a billion in some clubs, including in France. Um, it's almost worked out last year, but still didn't. So um, it shows that you can invest a lot, gain recognition, but then still don't win the trophy you actually are aiming for. Um, or you bid for a club in, uh, in England, as it was the case uh, last year or this summer. And, uh, and then the league, the concerned league, basically tells you, look, it's better you pull out now. Otherwise, we will disallow you to continue uh, and progress. But then you will lose face, although it was already a lost face in the beginning. So it doesn't work out always. But um, there are also examples where, where it actually did work out. And uh, certain countries could position themselves via investing into sports. You mentioned that earlier in, in your career, you were the assistant to the then president at FIFA, Sepp Blatter. How did that come about? Because FIFA is one of those organizations, I believe a lot of you know fans and people from the outside see as this, this kind of very closed entity in a way. Take me through that whole like the recruitment process for you to land in that job. Um, I was during my studies at the University of Zurich doing an internship at a company called ISC Hospitality, which was selling the first ever hospitality program for the 2006 World Cup in Germany. So what they basically did, they carved out the Category 1 tickets and the skyboxes and created a distinct category, which allowed FIFA to earn another almost 200 million plus in revenues, which otherwise they wouldn't have. And the founder of that company was Flavio Battaini. I did an internship there and he used to be the first marketing and legal director back then in FIFA when they only had around 30, 35 employees. And he's my mentor, but also a very close friend. And he was also the personal advisor of the FIFA president many years ago. So uh, and I told him that I would like to get into FIFA. So he said, you know, go finish your studies and then uh, let's stay in touch. And it was actually thanks to him that he opened that door. Uh, but I was the one who had to go through the door. And uh, so there were many rounds of interviews. And um, coincidentally, it was uh, rejuvenating a bit his office, uh, Mr. Blatter. So people got uh, either retired or, um, yeah, he just wanted to have a bit, I think, fresh blood also um, from, you know, coming from the outside. So, uh, yeah, the last interview then was uh, in front of a big big leather door and uh, I probably guessed who was on the other side was rather nervous and then I came inside and with his back then uh, other uh, assistant and then uh, well he asked me three questions he said it's okay start on Monday and that was that was it so it was a very big relief and um, an enormous uh, uh, experience to be able to be actually at the pinnacle of the football pyramid but then having worked through the football industry and now being involved as an entrepreneur myself in the club business, I actually think that the pyramid is the other way around because at the pinnacle are the clubs because the reality of the game in its most pure, brutal, but honest shape is on the field and nowhere else and not in a boardroom and not in any kind of negotiation table. It's on the field. So, it has been a tremendous experience in terms of having been able to see the world and travel and accompany the president uh, to all kinds of meetings, 
around the globe and to have witnessed the first ever FIFA World Cup on the African continent, to have witnessed the first ever double bid Qatar and uh, Russia 18, Qatar 22, and obviously his re-election. Uh, I wouldn't miss a day of that. And I think I wouldn't be doing this what I'm doing because those contacts obviously are also very supportive and helpful for, for all the entire business process. But uh, I also think that the reality is actually the club business, not not the not the uh, federation business or let's say the institutional governance business. Um, when you just described stepping through that door for that final interview, and you mentioned that you got three questions, I saw you breaking out in a smile. What were those three questions? Well, they basically asked me, uh, you know, why and um, how. What are my my what's my skill set? And, and actually, and you know, they asked me what what I'm you know what I think that I would be doing on a day to day. So I tried to sort of I prepared myself, and he obviously also had uh, had gone through my file as well, even though it was not not that thick, but just to get a bit of a glimpse on on what I've been doing and studies and the personal recommendations, obviously. And based on those three sort of questions, he said, "Okay, good, that, that makes sense." I mean, there's ambition, hunger, uh, young guy bringing in fresh ideas and, um, and you know, he studied, so he must have, have some intellectual background as well to, to prepare the work which, which he wanted me to prepare for him. What did the day-to-day look like? Well, we were traveling together, I was preparing speeches, attending minutes, uh, attending meetings and then producing minutes, um, sometimes liaising with the departments uh, internally uh, working on projects when there was a football development project, for instance, uh, in Africa, which required the input from the president's office to create the link there, um, uh, attending uh, special events, which were maybe not related to football, but more to the IOC, uh, or when the football federation had a special occasion where we were invited to all the events which uh, took place in the build-up to the Qatar 2022 World Cup, because also I'm half Turkish and my name and stuff. So I was the one accompanying uh, also to those meetings uh, and attending the congresses of the six confederations of Asia, Europe, Oceania, CONMEBOL, CONCACAF, all these, CAF in Africa, obviously, which was very interesting. Um, Yeah, so it was very diverse, uh, probably traveling around two to three days on average every week, some weekends, attending tournaments, every tournament was attended, be it the under-17 women's up to the FIFA World Cup, obviously, where you then stay eight weeks in in, uh, in South Africa. So highly diverse and very exciting. What's the most important lesson Sepp taught you? Uh, he was always there uh, before everyone else came, 6, 6, 15, sometimes even earlier. Um, and he always also was the one switching off the lights. And he said, look, that's what my father taught me. Be informed, prepare the day well, prepare the day before everyone else comes. Be up to date with the emails, with the correspondence, so that when the day begins, you have a bit of an advantage, a bit of an edge. You're already prepared for the meetings and stuff. So, so all of that, obviously, he's the boss. Huh? So... Uh, here as well, it's. I mean, I'm not the boss per se. We don't have egos, but uh, I have to know what's going on. I have to speak to 
everyone the evening before and then to plan the day well in advance because not to get into that organizational hassle or misinformation. It has nothing to do with brighter. It's just a simple question of be organized uh, and ask the right questions. Saves energy, saves stress, saves time, money maybe as well, because you do less mistakes. So that's that's something which, um, which I really learned from him from an organizational point of view and from a human point of view. It's the fact that... Um, you speak to someone and you, you listen to him, you give him the platform, the importance also, and the respect that that person is valued and valuable and deserves your ear and your thought. And uh, if you can transmit that to an associate, to an employee, to a business partner, you gain a lot. But it has to be sincere because if it's not sincere, they will look behind the facade and then you're burned. But if it's honest and if it's sincere, then you can build a lot of bridges very quickly. To a lot of people from the outside, I'd almost say he's a bit of an enigma. Um, you know him. Who is Saplatter? Well, I mean, uh, he's uh, the president, or he was the president of, I would say, one of the most globalized and global organizations. Uh, he has started in '76 as a development officer when uh, they had no money. So he even went to the local bank here, not far from our office, to take a mortgage on his personal uh, apartment back then in order to pay the salaries of those 10, 15 employees. And ever since, um, you know, developed the business plan. And when TV came, broadcast money started coming in and Coca-Cola started sponsoring and the thing became bigger and bigger. Um, yeah. The, the money the money machine football was launched and that's uh, at the one thing on the other one side it's uh, it's an enormous benefit on the other side uh, they have also created a bit of a monster so he was the one who initiated actually everything and where we stand today with over 550 employees and five billion turnover and capturing the entire world is is his legacy yeah I can imagine that a lot of people who who meet you are um, are kind of fascinated that you worked in in that position and and for him. What's the question you get the most about bladder? Yeah, it's a bit that uh, who was what 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 has been happening there, and everyone you know was in jail and and situations. Again, it's very difficult to explain to people that. Uh, because they don't understand, they, they don't do their homework, uh, they just criticize and they envy. The FIFA president is elected by the Congress. So he's elected by the 211 national associations. The executive committee members back then, which is now called FIFA Council, but back then there were 24, so the president plus 23, they are elected by their confederations. So imagine you are the chairman of um, Citibank, and uh, the Fed comes, or anyone else comes to you and says, okay, Sebam, those are your 23 board members. You never elected the guys. And with half of them, you would not even work. But then you have to deal with the board. And that's exactly the way FIFA is composed. So if you have Dr. Leos to stay a bit because you're from Chile, and you have uh, uh, um, Julio Grondona, 
and you have Ricardo Teixeira, those guys are elected from Comebol. They're not elected from FIFA. And if those guys or anyone else take money from an agency called Traffic or Full Play for media rights concerning the Copa America, then this is not a FIFA or a blotter related issue. It's a separate legal entity. The same for Asia, the same for, for, for Africa, Europe or Oceania. That's what people don't understand. So to have this complexity, to have a board, which you never elected, but to say, now you have to work with these people, requires what? It requires constant compromise and it requires constant balance between the powers. Otherwise, there's no chance because everyone has its own agenda. Because those people sitting there, unfortunately, they did not, most of them represent the interests of their confederation, which they represent, they represented their own interests. And then it becomes a problem. What were your feelings? I, I, I believe you had left FIFA by the time when uh, when kind of the, the case erupted and there was the raid at the Borolak Hotel. What were your no, feelings? Before, before. No, no, way before. No, 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 we uh, were... No, uh, no, no, we left years before. Yeah, that's what I mean. You were there way before that. Yeah, ah, yeah, well, yeah, I was, yeah, but no, I mean, some of them, they were there since, uh, yeah, 70s. Yeah, like exactly. Four years. Yeah. yeah. But, but you were there, but you weren't there at the time when, when all of that happened. But when you saw that happening, what, what was going through your head? Yeah, I had a meeting with one of the confer confederation presidents, uh, with Jeffrey Webb, uh, for another media rights related, uh, issue that day. And, um, well, then his secretary called and said, he won't be coming to the meeting. I said, well, when will he come? She said, well, she can't answer. Then I Googled and I said, mm, okay, the DOJ takes him, then it will probably take a couple of years. So uh, I was shocked, uh, to be honest, because uh, I was shocked that, uh, by the Swiss government, first of all, being Swiss, I can say that, that they accepted uh, that kind of deal, that the uh, Americans come at 6, 6, 10 a.m. in the morning and... Um, they did what they did, but that's a, a different issue. Uh, and then I was just shocked on a personal basis to see, you know, what's happening, that everything is falling apart. And what did you think at that point? Um, I was already gone for a couple of years, so it was not that emotional. It was just sort of, you could read always a bit in the media that something would come, sort of. And then when it did, uh, it was it was a bit of shock that it came so uh, abruptly. But then when you think if you do something like that, you're not going to announce it uh, and say, hey, we're going to come and get you. Uh, they just waited until everyone gathered uh, in one specific place. And then uh, they did what they did, yeah. We're getting towards the end. I thought I'm going to shoot a set of, let's call them somewhat random questions. Hopefully there'll be some that, that you haven't gotten before. Um, what's something new you're trying to learn at the moment? I'm trying to um, bring Spanish back to speed because uh, it's, it's something I really want to be able to speak uh, fluently. Um, I have a couple of languages which I am already able to speak, uh, but but Spanish is something I really want to 
be on a, on a good level, on a very on a on a very good conversation level. Or maybe you can give me some uh, some advice on that. That sounds good. We should do uh, a, a bi-weekly just, uh, you know, you can share some insights and I just keep the conversation going. Yeah, exa- exactly. In Spanish, though. Absolutely. I'll put that in the calendar for us. <laughs> um, what is something true that almost nobody agrees with you on? That football can drive you crazy. Because the ones which I speak about always see a bit the positive side. Um, say, yeah, yeah, but you know, if it, it goes well, let's spend more. And we sold that player. Let's invest in time. And and that's where you say, no, no, guys. I mean, it's not that we have all the wisdom, but I'm. I would be so more, so much more prudent and. and discreet and okay you make some money but you put a bit in, in into this club here maybe something but the rest you have to navigate now you have the covid crisis the tv rights are not being paid spectators are not coming sponsors are complaining just don't go crazy but um, everyone has that perception or most of the people i speak to that uh, you know football it can only go one way no no that's where the Swiss culture comes into play. Yeah, probably, yes. Luckily, if not, we would have been out of, out of business. <laughs> <laughs> As a person, what's your main attribute? Um, I'm very emotional to the, in the sense that uh, I, you, you could sell me anything. Because I'm a good, I consider myself as a good salesman as well, which is why I also sort of uh, I can be convinced um, very easily, which uh, is a bit maybe naive, romantic. You can call it however you want, but it also allows me to have a lot of interactions, and uh, and I think that thanks to the people I have surrounded myself in the business or, or with my wife who follows my business very closely and comes from the world of finance. Uh, I have a lot of pillars of trust that can guide me into the right direction to uh, minimize, not avoid, but minimize the mistake the scenario. So the main attribute is really being uh, actually highly emotionally driven. For people wanting to get into the industry, what areas should they be looking into? Technology, more, more and more, the data-driven performance analytics, uh, data analytics, those kind of performance-oriented software, which is in the field of football playing a bigger and bigger role. Secondly, um, this whole multi-club ownership seems to have now reached a different dimension. I think also that the US, America, the American investors uh, want to position themselves prior to the 2026 World Cup in order to have their momentum then, which they can utilize also in their home countries uh, from there on. So I think that could be interesting, but obviously not everyone can just say, okay, I'm going to start an alliance of clubs without know-how. But to, to be able to get into a club, to understand how a club functions, people always think it's super exciting. We are, it's just it's, it's normal business. I mean, we have 50 employees in each club with the sporting side. We have three, four revenue streams. Uh, unfortunately, it's even a bit unnormal because we are getting 65% from our revenues from TV. 
and not even we cannot even impact that. So it's someone up there who has negotiated the contract with Media Pro, who has looked at the guarantees. Guarantees are absolutely inexistent. And then suddenly, well, okay, we cannot pay anymore. Perfect. So what do we do? So in, in an own industry, if you have your own shop, at least you can decide how you want to impact your own revenue. So it's ordinary, but it also has some dependencies, which you don't have in other industries, but it's actually also not that exciting as everyone thinks from the outside or that sort of mysterious. It's a regular business, at least for me. What's the book that you've read that have impacted you the most? I've read Atlas Rug from Ayn Rand, which I liked a lot, and uh, Fountainhead, which was the other book which she wrote. So those two books, uh, I liked them a lot. And um, yeah, those were the ones which really impacted me for, for various purposes because of certain characters, how they behaved and how they built their business to steal business. Uh, I don't know if you read the book. I have not yet, but I, I'm taking a note. Atlas Shrug is very thick. It took me a long time, but it's okay. Yeah, no, I, I know the book. <laughs> yeah. um, who's a person in the football world you look up to and you think people should follow and learn from? Mm, I've met a lot of players. They were very humble and, uh, and role models, which you at first sight wouldn't have thought. And that was quite impressive. Um, there is, for instance, uh, well, Patrick Kluivert, who has become a, um, a close friend of mine, um, who had a very spectacular career, but then uh, also at the same time remains very humble and down to earth, especially if you, if you, if you know him. Um, from the coaching side, I've also met a couple of coaches who at first you thought maybe they're a bit you know, arrogant, but then you figure out that they are just there to to protect the team uh, and to take all the heat and whatever is behind. Uh, they basically uh, want to protect their players. And they're, uh, I'm talking about our coaches. They may not be uh, Mourinho or big, big uh, coaches, as we know in the media, but there are people whom I work with uh, every day. That impresses me a lot because they have the courage to stand in front of the team, to take the heat, and to protect our players, and then the way they talk to the players to, to make them better the next day. So um, people who inspire me are a lot uh, people who have been involved in the day-to-day -day management of the game and who had very glorious times, but then also difficult times and came out of that. So have this, this spirit of survival and to recompose yourself week after week and try to give the best performance on the field. And that's really something which only those super athletes can deliver. And um, that gives me goosebumps. And it can be in the Premier League, in a top club, but it can be also in our club. Of all the people that you've met in the football world, who is the one who's made the greatest impression on you? The FIFA president. Last one. Who do you think I should interview on this podcast? Well, I mean, obviously I'm biased, but I would recommend one of my associates, Jerome Champagne, who has had a, uh, an amazing career in politics. He was in uh, stationed in Havana, in, in, in um, Oman, in Brasilia, in Los Angeles, then came into football and I, 
his his, his life story is, is just fascinating. Absolutely. So, but again, maybe you know you have something else in mind. But uh, from the people I've met and uh, being able to work with him on a day-to-day basis is extremely fascinating because he's not only very knowledgeable but because he's also very deep in 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 the stories which he which he tells and so i could do an introduction there (laughs) (laughs) i very much appreciate that he's he he sounds like a really interesting character so uh absolutely he was i mean you can check on google and and i'm sure you have your own sources there so you let me know I definitely will. Um, all right, Ahmed. Thank you so much. Thank you for your time. And uh, we, I wish you all the best and a healthy 2021. And yeah. let's, let's be in touch. Huh? Thank you so much, Ahmed. It's been a, it's been a real pleasure. And uh, I'm going to pick you up on those, you know, the Spanish lessons. Uh, you know, we, we, we have several to-dos here on, on our list moving forward. So I look forward to staying in touch. Uh, best of luck with the, with the clubs. Uh, it's going to be fascinating to, to follow that that journey as well and, and start rooting for those teams thank you very much Seven. all right Speak take soon. care thank you All the take care Ciao. Ciao. thank you for listening i hope you enjoyed it if you did please subscribe to the show on itunes and write a review it will help tremendously as we grow this podcast one listener at a time Tell your friends about it, share it on social, all that good stuff. The Football Studio will be back next week with a new episode. Thanks again and have a good one.